Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. According to a study done by the Center for Poverty Research at the University of California, Davis, the official poverty rate in the U.S. is 13.5%, based on the Census Bureau's 2015 estimates. So an estimated 43.1 million Americans live in poverty, according to the official measure. Other experts say this number is way too low. Even though there are so many people living in poverty, they often go unnoticed, almost invisible to those with decent incomes and higher standards of living. One woman, however, has given a face and a voice to poverty. Her name is Linda Torado. She's an author and an activist and has experienced poverty firsthand. Her most recent book is Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America, published by Penguin Press. Linda joins us this week on Spectrum. When you wrote the initial essay... That is a, a very kind way to describe it. It was a comment on a message board on the back pages of Gawker. It was a very long comment, to be sure. Had you just had it, or or what was it, yeah, what was the impetus behind it? I had been supposed to be off my shift at the restaurant at 9 p.m., and the closing cook called off, so then I had to close the restaurant, which meant I had been at work from 6 a.m. until 2 a.m. And uh, I got home, I think I got home actually at like 1 that night, and uh, I'd had a couple of beers, and I'm trying to calm down. I'm online, and somebody said something wrong on the internet um, about poor people and, and food stamps and iPhones. And, and I just kind of was like, no, no, somebody on the internet was wrong. And so I kind of fired off this, here are all of the ways that you are wrong, madam. Um, and, and then everybody thought that I'd been, you know, spending a month on a well-considered essay. <laughs> <laughs> About six million views total? Uh, yeah, it's actually 20. Um, 20, 20 now? 20 now, yeah, yeah. It, it hit six million, I think, in the first couple of weeks. And it's just sort of like every year now it comes back up and people think it's new and they write me and they want to know how they can help. And I'm like, I, actually, I'm, I'm an author now and I, I lecture at universities. I'm cool. Find you a single mom. Thank you. Um, but, you know, for, for me, it's kind of a weirdly heartwarming thing that, that pops up about once a year now around Thanksgiving time or Christmas time when we all start thinking about those less fortunate. So why did this take off? Do you have any idea? Um, 
Do you know, I think it's because I'm absolutely unapologetic. Um, most of the time when we talk about poverty, and particularly people who work in low-income situations, um, you know, they are uh, properly ashamed of their station. And I just sort of refuse to be because, listen, I, I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I'm a hell of a hard worker. I'm a self-starter. Um, if those jobs don't exist for me to get ahead, then the problem probably isn't me. It's the system of jobs that we don't have. And as we increasingly move into uh, what they call casual work overseas um, or precarious work, which is a term I like even better, um, and, and we kind of move into that no contract, at will, no chance for advancement, no chance for hours. Um, you can't blame people for having those jobs when that's all that there is out there. And I refuse to apologize for it. More to the point, I think it's morally bankrupt than anybody else would ask me to. Um, and, and I think that that's a very rare uh, outlook to take. Um, because I've actually just really never cared about what happened next. I, I have a, um, I have a, a high risk tolerance and apparently a death wish. So for me, um, I, I don't see any value in saying anything that isn't the way that I see it. And I think that the system that we have screws a lot of people over. And I think it's horrifying that we then ask them to, you know, apologize for having been put in the position they were put in to begin with. So when you were getting 20,000 and up emails a, a week, were most of the people going yes or people going, are you kidding me? Well, it depends on what class they came from. Actually, if you go um, and look at my book reviews, you can tell the class background of the reviewer by how they handle the last chapter. Um, so I've which got, is your open letter to rich yeah, people, right? Yeah, 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 which is actually a joke that nobody gets, which is, I think, my favorite part of the whole book. So I've got nine chapters of, hey, it sucks to be poor. Let me run you through some math. 7.5 times 40, if you're lucky, times four is not enough money to pay your rent on. And and people have never sat down and done that math before. So I had written this whole book this whole thing and I, I gave it to the publishers and my editors and they they actually told me um, you know this is written for poor people and I said yes absolutely and they were like well you need to remember who your audience is poor people don't buy hardcover and I thought okay and so I in a fit of angst and, and worry <laughs> that night wrote an, an open letter to rich people in which I, I basically just thought I'm just going to mock all of my stereotypes and I'm going to blow off some steam. And I gave it to my editors and they loved it and they wanted it to be the serial part. So at, at the end of the book, I have this open letter. And and partially it's tongue in cheek and partially it's a way of flipping it on its head of like, okay, well, I've just spent nine chapters telling you what it is to, to be demonized and to be stereotyped and all of those things. Here's a taste of it. I, I was making fun of pearl face creams and purse dogs. I mean, this this isn't like hard hitting economic, you know, right. you should feel guilty. But you can tell the class background of a reviewer based on whether they thought that chapter was hysterically funny or actually vaguely threatening. Like there are people out there going, the whole book was great, but she gets to that last chapter and she's just <laughs> everything she said. It's like she didn't even hear herself. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. No, the mail. Um, you know, the mail comes split. It's. Uh, I don't get twenty thousand a week anymore, thank God. Um, but I, I'd say it's about a third people 
who are are happy to see themselves represented unapologetically um, because we don't talk about these things amongst ourselves. We don't talk about the emotional toll. We don't talk about any of that. So everybody thinks they're kind of uniquely suffering and that they're uniquely incapable. And so to hear somebody be like, nah, dude, I drink a lot. That's pretty much how I got through it. Um, it, it. It kind of gives people permission to be human. Um, and then there's a third, like, hate mail and death threats and, and, and whatever, because if you stand up for any kind of oppressed community, people will be angry at that for some reason. Um, and then I get a lot of requests for information and, and people that want to know how they can help and what they can do. Um, because increasingly, as I talk to middle class folks and I go, hey, did you realize you've kind of been being a jerk your entire life? And they go, oh, God, no. How do I not do that? Um, and so people will write and say, how, how do I not be a dick to service workers? And I go, well, just don't. And then everything will be fine. That's, that's, that's basically it. That's a borderline human condition. Just don't be a jerk. And then you won't have been a jerk. Um, but but that's not really enough. People want like concrete tips on Give how to be steps, nice uh. to be service workers. And I'm like, okay, well, try not insulting them for the job that they hold. Try not. My um, my favorite interactions with customers would be the ones where we'd have a, a short conversation and I'd reference something that, you know, service workers aren't supposed to know, like philosophy or opera or something. They go, have you ever thought about going to college? You just don't belong here. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I have thought of that. Thank you very much. Uh, I actually am capable of thinking through my own life and trying to figure out. But, you know, thank you for the advice, madam. Um, so that that's always been fun. So when you did the, the first thing that went viral before the book, you were a, a hero for many. And then all of a sudden it seemed like you became the target of – of people assailing you. Yeah, well, we uh, can't have nice things. And talk about that dynamic. Why do you, why do you think that happened? Um, partially, it's because uh, of the nature of the internet. Viral can't happen without the backlash. It just can't, and it never will. Um, partially, it's I uh, you know the same thing that every second rap album has ever discussed of when you when you come up. There will be people that, that are angered by that because I, frankly, am not a hero and I'm not a terribly good example. Nobody should want to be like me. I'm a bit of a mess of a human being. I just have some good insights on a few things. And so people look at me and they go, but you're not perfect and I've worked harder than you and I've always towed the line more than you did and why are you being rewarded when I wasn't? And, you know, that's a, a, a valid, maybe not critique, but a valid feeling for people to have. So there was a lot of that in there. Um, and then there was a fair bit of, I'm, I'm a bit of a dangerous thinker that way because the, the economic system that we have depends on the underclasses never becoming self-aware. And if if suddenly we think that we're worth something, if somebody is spreading the message that you can have worked on and off at low wages your entire life and you are just as valuable, I promise you, as anybody Donald Trump is putting into the cabinet, probably more qualified for a cabinet position to boot, if we believe that about ourselves, we might then demand unionization. We might demand wages. We might demand medical care. We might demand all of the things that we're told that we, we get, only we don't. 
And if we become aware of that and start demanding it, that's politically dangerous. So there is a huge pushback from the right wing and especially the upper classes of the right wing um, be, because it, it is dangerous to have poor people understand that they should not be wearing hair shirts. You said in in your book, I believe, that that poor people are dehumanized by the rich. Is is that what you were just talking about in, in part? Yeah. Um, yes, and we internalize it, and that's the thing. Is is oh, it's a burger flipping job. Oh, you, your jobs are gone. I live in coal country. The jobs are gone. They're never coming back. Get over it. Right. And there's no understanding that this is an entire group like these are hundreds of thousands of people. And this is an actual thing that the country itself should be taking care of. It's very, oh, you got screwed. So it's on you individually to fix it. Um, and if you don't, then you're uneducated. How many times have we heard that the uneducated Trump voter that votes against their best interest and, and where in that narrative is there room for people at low wages to be thinking autonomous? autonomous human beings that actually have a rationale that makes sense in their world. Just because it doesn't make sense in New York doesn't mean it doesn't make sense in West Virginia. And and so that, that dehumanization and that shame um, becomes internalized. And and that I think is is the most dangerous part of all of it is when you start believing that you really are inferior else you'd be doing better. Because in this society, we consider money to be success. And success denotes value and worth. And if you don't have those things, then you must be valueless and worthless. And it's simply not true. But that that cognitive dissonance gets really hard to maintain. And you can only hear people tell you that you're worthless so many times for so many years before you either believe it or you break. You, you also said that the bulk of society fear the poor. It, it, in what sense? Um, well, largely, there's more of us than there are them. <laughs> okay. Um, I talk, I've, I've gotten a lot of, of academic education in, you know, vectors of oppression and things like that over the last years. Um, but I, I often compare it to race, which is to say I am a white person. I understand white people being afraid of black people because let me tell you if I had to tolerate that I'd have had 20 guns already right like I we would not tolerate that um and it's the same sort of thing where I think wealthy people look at poor people and go oh my god if they ever figure it out we're screwed and that's why you see people actually moving more and more into these these kind of segmented communities where they've got private security and they all live in these enclaves and it, it really is kind of a, a weird subconscious moving away from because as inequality rises and as fewer people have more and more of the wealth, it's going to eventually get bad on the bottom. And we're starting to see that where the middle classes are now starting to get squeezed. And we elected friggin' Donald Trump. That was the reaction. Like when people, when you lose control of a populace that you have been controlling, they become unpredictable, and unpredictable is always dangerous. And so there, there's a good portion of like they don't want us to organize. They don't want us to think we can organize because once we lose that respect for authority, then we'll stop listening to them. And the thing. 
that is true about Warren Buffett. He knows really well how to move money around. He knows how to create money where there was none before. What he does not know how to do is take care of himself on a daily basis. Can't do it. Man hasn't had an actual job in I don't know how many years. <laughs> and, you know, good on him. He's a power player. He's a master of the universe, right? And we all love him because he still lives in the same whatever ranch house. But at the end of the day, if he didn't have hundreds of thousands of people underneath him doing all of the ant work, he would never be able to do what he does. He is dependent on us. And if we ever realize that, we can cut off their access. And, and what rich people really hate, and, and it's a generalization to say rich people, but when we're talking oppositionally, yeah, yeah, when we're talking oppositionally, what they absolutely can't risk is that we will stop moving all of the, the gears for them because that is where they make their profit from. This sounds to me remarkably like some of the pre-union discussions. It is remarkably a lot like the pre-union discussions. Um, I've actually, I've been, I'm a a Twitter fiend. I I live on Twitter. Um, And and recently- And it's at Killer Martinis. Killer Martinis. Um, But recently I've been talking about those power dynamics and those power structures and the fact that we in this country have lost the threat of left and right because we've replaced this with Republican and Democrat. And so as these parties have moved further and further to the right, where now you have Chuck Schumer, the guy who wants to deregulate banking, is apparently our luminary leader on the left, right? And, And we've defanged at unions and we've demonized actual leftism. And what we're going to find is a situation very like the 20s and 30s where a bunch of workers are just going to be like, right, none of this is working for us. I mean, just this morning, they've arrested McDonald's workers uh, who were demonstrating for unions for the fight for 15. And there are nationwide arrests going on right now in nationwide protests. And that won't get a lot of coverage. But when you got people making minimum wage willing to get arrested and get themselves locked out of their job... It's about time we had a reckoning. So yeah, no, I'm very, very pro-union. The the and and not the unions that we have, actual unions that organize actual workers. Because the unions we have right now, we have 34 at-will states, and they go, well, we really can't do anything in those states. Well, what exactly are you here doing? Protecting your shrinking market share? Uh, no, 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 no. I want to see. I want to see a union movement that protects every single worker in every single sector in every single industry. I want to see safety protections. I want to see wage protections. I want to see sick time. I want to see all of those things that are needful for a healthy society that we've sort of thought we could get by without because corporations would just kindly go with it. Do you think that people who voted poor people? who voted for Donald Trump, uh, not all of them, but some of them, that whenever you put your faith in a, an elected system, you come up disappointed. That's, that's just my personal point of view. So, so a lot of people who voted for change are probably going to be disappointed over, over the next four years. Oh, I don't what, know. I think things are going to change. I don't think it's necessarily going to be good, but, but things will but, change. But what does that do for the the angst of the the person who is disappointed? 
I think that we misarticulate a lot of this um, okay. because people, you know, and again, folks who, who are on low incomes are discouraged from thinking about their inner lives and civic participation, actively discouraged and actively kept from it by the nature of the lives that they live. So they say, oh, I want to change. What I found in conversations with people who are Trump supporters Trump annoys all of the people who have been ruining our lives for the last 20, 30 years. He annoys them. They hate him. They didn't want him as their leader. There was nothing that scared the Republican establishment and the Democratic establishment more than Donald Trump. This wasn't about getting change. This was about telling Washington to get bent. This was no, no, no. Both of you guys, a pox on all of your houses. And and the reason that people identified with Trump is that he's vulgar. He, They hate him for all of the same reasons they hate us. He doesn't know what's appropriate. He'll walk into a room and say whatever the hell he thinks. And, you know, low-income people don't have time for niceties. We tend to be very blunt. We tend to be, you know, have you ever been in a kitchen? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, people, when they say, oh, he's just like me, and everybody goes, he's a billionaire that's lived in New York since, what do you mean he's just like you? Oh, no, no, no. He's just like me. Me and Donald Trump, he and I personally, we got some things in common. I actually have no more respect for authority than that man does. I actually don't care what their rules are. Their rules are stupid and they don't reflect the reality that I see around me. So I work in the reality that exists, not in the one that the political establishment would like me to believe in. And and he does that same thing. So when people voted for change, they were voting for a change in the way that Washington views us, because now that we've established Donald Trump and he lost the popular vote, sure. sure. But the people that voted for him, now that they've established him, Washington will never take it for granted again that we won't punish them. Suddenly that power has returned to the masses. Now, and it, it is a Pyrrhic victory at best. Um, right. But when you're looking at a a career where you've gotten a 50 cent raise in the last five, six years, and you're never going to be able to put your kids through college, and you're never going to be able to buy a house, and you're never going to save for retirement, what does it matter if the country burns? What does it matter? Your country is already burning. So what if another few people have to deal with the same thing they're making you deal with for the rest of your life? And I think that that anger, though it's not very well articulated, is actually what brought Trump into office. But I think that's far more nuanced than anybody really wants to get into. Um, Because what that actually says is that people have lost so much faith in our democratic systems that they're willing to put a guy who is openly an authoritarian leading fascist who has neo-Nazis saluting him into office. And they want to blame that on racism, which sure, part of it. And they want to blame it on sexism. And sure, the the cultural backlash against the, the reasonably progressive last 20 years, right? fine. But I I think what it says more than anything is that the average American has utterly lost faith in our democratic systems. This is a Congress who, you know, I make this joke in Australia because they switch prime ministers about once a week. Yeah, right. Um, And I tell them, you know, you guys wake up not knowing who your PM's going to be. We wake up wondering if the government's going to be open today. And 
when I tell that joke, Americans go, oh, we haven't shut down the government in years. And I go, oh, well, that makes it better. Of course, we can't get a Supreme Court sat because the Republicans have apparently decided that constitutional responsibility, we're the ones that get to decide because we get to. I mean, we have a bunch of petulant toddlers running our country and have had for quite some time. And if they're not petulant, they're gutless. There's, I mean, and, and I lobby on the Hill. I know and like a lot of senators and Congress people. But it's not working. It's no, not working. It's just flat out not working. And Donald Trump is is the biggest sign that everybody else has caught on to it. This is the time in America where the populace went, mm, you guys, we gave you a chance and you didn't do it. So now we're going to explode the thing and see what comes of it. Because whatever comes of it can't be worse than what we have now. And I think that's an indictment on how we've been doing business for the last 20 or 30 years. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Do you think our government over the last 20 years, and we've talked about some progression, and there certainly has been in some areas, but does government inherently divide people and, and especially divide poor people so that People are competing against each other all the time, and if they're competing against each other, they can't be looking at the government or they can't be demanding more. The government does not do that. Our factions do. Talk so um, the, the founding fathers actually strongly warned against factional parties because of exactly this outcome. This is what they saw coming. And um, – the, the government itself is, is a series of tools and institutions and systems. It doesn't divide anybody against anybody. The politics does. And there has certainly, I mean, even in this election, look at, at the way that you saw the parties frame. The Democrats basically collapsed like a friggin' flan in a cupboard, to borrow a line from Eddie Izzard, um, and, and how to fight over, you know, are you going to get white people or not white people? Do women vote with us or do they vote against us? And anybody who was seen to have a slightly different attitude than the prevailing wisdom in, in the party was speaking heresy and needed to be purged. 
And now they're having a leadership fight in the Democrats over, are we going to do this or that? Like, which way is the party going to head? And what nobody's paying attention to is fewer than one third of the country identifies as a Democrat and fewer than one third of the country identifies as Republicans and over 40 percent of the country identifies as independents. And so we get into these like internecine wars and, and it's framed to us as binary and it isn't binary, but they need us to think that it is so that we have an enemy to fight because as long as we're at war with either East or Eurasia, then we'll keep giving them money and our support because if we don't give them our money and support, these evil other will come and get us. And what they don't realize is that I can't be a Democrat because I own a lot of guns and I believe in just war. And, you know, there's all these things that make me fairly conservative and they're heresy in the Democratic Party. But I can't be a Republican because I'm a woman and I believe that black people are human and should have more help than white people do because we have historically oppressed people. You know, like, so I have all of these progressive views and then I have all these conservative views and I don't fit into a box. And so I am alienated by this party system which at this point, neither party has actually managed to do anything positive in so long that their only narrative they can sell us is always being at war with Eurasia or East Asia. They've boxed themselves, painted themselves into that corner. Democrats started losing, you know, right about when Reagan happened. Right. Reagan came in and said, I'm going to do a bunch of this. And they went, no, 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 don't do that. The Reagan Democrats, the defection and, well, and, and started. Not, to... Yeah. And, and then ever since then, the Democrats have been playing, well, let's mitigate the harm instead of let's put forward, you know, actual policy solutions. They, they had a sit-in over gun rights this spring. And it was possibly the first time I've seen like actual moral backbone out of out of the Democrats at that level in my entire adult life. But the other thing you got to think about is in my adult life, um, the first election I remember paying attention to was Clinton v. Bush. And I was looking this year like, are you friggin kidding me? We're doing Clinton. But like <laughs> that would have made it Clinton, Clinton, Bush, Bush, Obama, Obama, Clinton, Bush. Yeah. I, it's, out I think about this maybe more than somebody in their 50s does because it's been, you know, my adult life. But when you have ruling families like that and when the power has calcified like that, you cannot then go to an average person and be like, so which team are you going to pick? Well, either way, the bankers are getting bailed out and I'm not. So why on earth should I care which of you gets to sit in which chair? I don't like. So. uh I'm not sure how to phrase this question, so sort of follow follow me if you could. I'm with it. <laughs> and part of your premise in, in, in your book and, and your writings are that poor people make bad decisions many times because they just are in a perpetual state of exhaustion and, and, and can't can't think their way out of uh, horrible situations and just de-energized mm-hmm. in, in given circumstances. Has this election and this um, screw you to power, do you think it's energized poor people at all? No, 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 no. Um, 
so the the reason that I, I talk about that is a it's science. Um, if you are living in a low income situation with precarious work, um, you will actually underperform on IQ tests over what you do. About ten points actually is what it wow. cuts off your IQ. Because your brain is actually so caught up in in all of these shifting decisions that you have to track that it literally just takes up your bandwidth. It's the spoon theory of like I, I have no spoons left. Um, but frequently, we when I say poor people make bad decisions, it's because there are no good decisions to make. Our choices are constrained into do you want bad, worse, or terrible, and so we pick bad, which is objectively a good decision. But then looked at from the outside, it's it's. Bad. Bad. Um, and, and that's coming into play here where there was no good decision. There was no good decision for a poor person here, uh, for, for a low-income worker. Hillary Clinton talked a great game, and so do the Dems. Um, however, Hillary Clinton has also presided over an awful lot of decisions and been in vocal support for a lot of years over an awful lot of decisions that hurt me and mine. Um, the Republicans at least will tell you to your face, like, and and you got to give Paul Ryan credit for that. He'll just tell you you're irresponsible and damn the torpedoes. <laughs> Whereas, you know, the Democrats will go, oh, my God, we need to get you some programs. And then you never get one. And it, it's almost more insulting. Or if you get one, it's mismanaged. And, right. And does it of, does it address the problem? Right. <laughs> right. And it's actually more insulting, which yeah. I, I think is a lot of the reason people caucus with Republicans is because at least they'll tell them to their faces. And we appreciate that kind of honesty. But in, in this election, where was the candidate that had any sort of a snowball's chance that was going to be objectively good for low-income people? Find me the candidate that was going to be strongly pro-union. Find me the candidate who would actually give up some of their own personal legacy to fight for what was right. I don't believe Hillary Clinton would do that, and I sure don't believe any of the Republicans would have. I think um, Sanders is closer than any other shot we would have had, but Sanders is a 70, I think, four-year-old socialist from Vermont. So, (laughs) you know, how much is he really going to get done? So the problem for us is that we keep bringing up candidates every couple of four years. We talk about how it's a new dawn and a new chance, but it's the same system with the same people. So, you know, what, what... what are you really going to get there? And and that's the allure of Trump is he's the first time there might actually this might actually change, knock a few things loose. This guy, by being insane, is going to force us to actually have a conversation about what we believe as a nation and what we think is important. And and I I wish we could do that without encroaching fascism. But, you know, it, it, it's the one upside I'm seeing is that, oh, my God, look, we're I'm having conversations with people every single day about what we believe. I'm, I'm having conversations about civics and philosophy with average people who never talk about this because we don't do civics and philosophy in America anymore. We don't do history. And suddenly everybody's interested in it, which I'm a silver linings person, always have been. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe through this chaos, uh, something will emerge. Is that is that your hope? Well, the libertarians call it the disruption. They've been prepping for it for years now, moving to New Hampshire, getting ready to take over a whole <laughs> state. God love the free staters. 
Um, you know, but yeah, there there is definitely a sense that something has to give. They, you know, you've got the administration telling us everything's great. We're in recovery. The unemployment rate's practically zero. And you're like, right, I have a job. It's 10 hours a week at minimum wage, but I have a job. So and I, no benefits. Right. And, like, and I no guess child that's recovery. Care and and uh, the whole litany of, of have not. Right. And, and the gaslighting is what's got people upset of like, I don't think most low income Americans, if you came to us and you said, look, you can't be Luddites. There's no point stop trying to stop technology. But what we're going to do is it's going to suck for 20, 30 years, but we're going to get some programs in. Your kids are going to have like an amazing shot. Like you're a lost generation. We're sorry for that. Every time there's a huge technical revolution, the industrial revolution, the printing press, you know, they always have a period of unrest and a lot of people get screwed. And that's happening now. And it's awful. You know, we're sorry. But your kids are going to have an amazing thing. This is what we're going to build out of this wreckage. Man, most of us would go for that. Most of us would go for that. But nobody's willing to be that kind of honest with us. And they tell us to suck it up and get over it. And there's no sign that there's going to be an improvement. Or look how much better you're doing. Right, right. Look <laughs> how much better you're doing. And I'm like, okay. I mean, me personally, I'm doing fine. I'm an author now. I'm an, you know, I travel the world and I, I do stuff. I'm doing fine. But everybody I've ever worked with before I wrote that essay and had my life change is still basically doing the same jobs in the same places for the same wages while costs go up, while, you know, programs get cut. And they're getting increasingly stuck in that mire. So everybody goes, oh, my God. They look at me and they go, you are an example of meritocracy working. And I go, if we are waiting on all of the poor people in America to get a book deal. <laughs> Good luck. We need to rethink our economic plan. <laughs> Good luck. What I hear you talking about is something that, that we don't talk much about, I don't think, in this country. We don't talk – I don't think we talk enough about race and have real conversations. But we certainly don't talk about class. And, and whether it's driven by economics or, or, or other reasons, what you're really talking about is sort of class differentials in, in this country. Yeah. Um, we, we don't talk about race uh, because if you're white, you're afraid of misstating if you're on the left. So nobody wants to misstate. And so we don't speak about it at all. Um, and if you're if you're not white, you talk about it all the friggin' time, but you never get into the platforms because they're all run by white people. <laughs> um, and and the same with the same happens with class where, you know, how many times and, and, and I talk about this frequently, how many times have you seen a reporter who comes from what we call the Acela corridor, which is the high speed train that runs between DC and New York nonstop? Um, come out and and take a look at a you know out of work coal miners family, and you get like the the horrifyingly depression era photos that they've recreated for their readers. And they come out and they talk about how these people have lost hope and they've lost faith and they have no future and they have no love and they have no joy in their life. And you're just Okay, but that's the only representation we get. And it, it's one of the reasons I think that I've resonated is, is because, like, I'm not a tourist. Like, I, I, I spent 15 years in the service industry, and I spent those 15 years thinking that would be my life forever, um, which is the big difference. Like, you can't just go visit it for a minute and understand it. But we don't talk about the differences because if we did, we might have to morally indict somebody above us. 
And that's the thing. White people won't talk about race because we're afraid of being called racist. And not only being called racist, we're afraid of having to confront the fact that we probably are a little bit racist because, you know, if we wouldn't, you know, say something impolite, we do at least benefit an awful lot from from being white. I spent months in Ferguson um, as, as a journalist, actually. And what I found was that I got left alone by the cops. Like there was a couple that, that picked me out exactly to target me because they did that with any journalist. But largely, if we were on the protest line, I had a, they would ask me to leave. They'd say, ma'am, we don't <laughs> want to arrest you. And would you please leave? Yeah. And they were super polite about it. Like they come up to me and they'd be like, ma'am, we're going to have to start making arrests. We just wanted to let you know. And they wouldn't tell any of the black people that. And they didn't politely ask the black people to move. That isn't how that happened. But me, they would politely ask. And, and if you have to confront that sort of thing and if you talk about it, then you have to confront Everything you've ever done that maybe oppressed somebody else and nobody wants to think of themselves as a bad person. So then we just avoid it. Um, and the same with class, which which is actually even worse, because at least I can't help being white. I can help not making that charitable donation. So then if you talk about class and you go, well, here are some concrete ways that you could help. You're going to have to give up a little bit of your own comfort. But here are concrete ways you can help. And then you go, nah. Then you've got to think about the fact that it's actually completely within your – you could call Congress today and say, I would like a fairer tax structure. I would like to pay more taxes so that people below me pay less. You could call your congressperson today, and everybody should. I recommend it. But we're not going to do that. And then we have to think about the fact that we're not willing to do that, which means that we are willing to keep other people a little bit more oppressed so that we can keep our comfort. And nobody wants to think that, even though it's the human friggin' condition. Like we, we evolved to get ourselves into a decent place. That's what we're meant to do. And, and so to admit our humanity is somehow a moral failing that we run from. And I, I really don't understand why. So... What's next for you? Are you writing another book? I, I am. I'm, I'm writing. Well, if, if you hear me tell it, I'm actually writing like six books because okay. I keep starting on one <laughs> and thinking this is crap and starting a different one. Um, no, I, I, um, I lecture. Um, I do a lot of education work. Um, I freelance articles. I write books that are then rejected because they're far too fiery. Um, and and we'll we'll see if I can eventually get one past my editors. So, uh, so yeah. So let me ask you a, a, maybe an impolite question. Oh no, I'm uh, such a terribly polite person. Don't don't offend my sensibilities. That's. Do you see yourself as a spokesperson for the poor? Oh God, no, 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 and nobody can be because you're talking about 49 million people. And and I, I'm a 34-year-old white lady from rural Utah and now rural Ohio. Like, there's only – I've seen a lot of the world, but I, I, I have no idea what it is to be a, a racial minority and also poor. I have no idea what it is to be in a wheelchair and try to find a job or to, to have a medical condition that's unseeable and, and have to find a job or to be 50 – and try to find a job like I, nobody can speak for everybody. The only thing I can do is tell you what it was for me and then tell you how much easier I had it than an awful lot of other people. And it sucked. It sucked as it was. So, <laughs> you know, it's worse for other people. And, and when people say that I somehow represent 
um, anybody but myself, I kind of have a violent pushback to that because I um, am, am no hero and I am certainly not a role model and I certainly don't represent, you know, RTs are not endorsements <laughs> is basically where that's at. No, I, I am me and, and I am very lucky to have been gifted um, with the talent to be able to, to articulate things. Um, and, and so I suppose I, I'm, I'm fairly, I am representative of the, of the things that, that all of us have in common. Um, but that's as far as, as I'll take that. Today we've talked with author and activist Linda Tirado about being poor in America and her most recent book, Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.